Welcome to Thinking Philosophy. I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. Stephen Hawking famously wrote that philosophy is dead because the big questions that used to be asked by philosophers are now in the hands of physicists. But physicists are still struggling with some of the biggest questions of how the universe works. And today's philosopher believes that could be because they need philosophy. Professor Sam Barron is a researcher with the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy at Australian Catholic University. His work focuses on the nature of time, the nature of mathematics, and the nature of philosophy itself. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks, Deborah. Why does physics need metaphysics? I mean, I think there are a couple of things here that are important. One of them is that a lot of science has some kind of metaphysics baked in, in some way, shape, or form. You can't do science without making some assumptions about the world. For instance, if you want to do science, you have to assume that there is a world to be studied. And that in itself starts to look like a metaphysical assumption if you stare at it long enough. So I think that a lot of science just can't get away from metaphysics in a certain sense. And so in virtue of having metaphysics kind of built into your theories, you need to spend some time investigating the metaphysical assumptions that underlie science. But I also think that this cuts both ways. So at a certain point, uh, you can get into trouble because some of those metaphysical assumptions that might be that you might be taking for granted, that might be built into your scientific theories, are uh, going to lead to problems in some cases. And what you might have to do in order to make progress in science is to actually get rid of some of the metaphysics that you've unknowingly built into your theories in virtue of taking certain things for granted. And I think that we can see that at, uh, in, in the history of science. There are certain points, certain turning points where metaphysical assumptions have been the sorts of things that have been thrown out during a scientific revolution. So I think it's really important to sort of keep track of your metaphysical uh, claims that are being assumed in the background of your theories. So before we get on to some of the current problems, tell me about those times in history where metaphysical assumptions have been thrown out due to new science. Yes, I think one of the most significant turning points in recent history was the shift from Newtonian physics into Einstein's relativistic mechanics. And uh, there were some empirical results that we couldn't explain that were motivating Einstein to, and, and others to develop a new theory. And at the sort of time at which Einstein's developing his theory, there are other people developing similar theories in order to try and explain away the empirical results or come up with new empirical predictions. And there's a certain sense in which Einstein's, at least with the case, the, the, the sort of special theory of relativity, Einstein's theory and the alternatives are, are very similar. They're using the same mathematics. They're explaining the same empirical facts. They're doing a lot of the same work. But there's a huge metaphysical difference between the, the theories. So in the case of Einstein's theory, you have a very elegant, metaphysically sparse theory. And in the case of one of the chief rivals, which was a theory put forward by Lorentz, you had a really metaphysically inflated version of the same theory. And we kind of see that Einstein's theory won, at least in part, because it seems to get rid of a whole lot of the metaphysical baggage. So the, the sort of, one of the big things people talk about here is the ether, the idea that the universe is sort of filled with a kind of fluid that permeates all of space. And Einstein's theory gets rid of the idea of the ether, but there were theories kicking around at the time that, that had it built in. And it was once we sort of moved away from thinking of the universe as having 
and ether that we get some real advances, I think, in, in relativity at least. And is the question of an ether a metaphysical rather than a physical question? Wasn't it a fact about whether this liquid actually existed? I mean, this is a sort of difficult question in part because I don't know that anyone's going to be able to give you a good account of the distinction between metaphysical and physical facts. And that's sort of partly why I'm skeptical of any physicist who thinks that metaphysics can just be ejected out of out of rational inquiry and out of investigation because at the end of the day I don't I think if you're going to get rid of metaphysics you have to sort of sign up for giving an account of what the metaphysical facts are or what what it is to be a metaphysical claim that you're then getting rid of. And so um, I'm inclined to think that there is no sharp distinction here between the sort of metaphysical and physical physical things. But I suppose some people uh, might have at least something like the following view, and this was certainly in the air when Einstein was developing his theory, that if you've got two scientific theories and they're empirically equivalent, which is to say that there's no possible prediction that uh, would confirm one theory over the other theory, right? So there's no test you could carry out actually, but there's no physically possible test that you can carry out either. Uh, then some people are inclined to think that the remaining differences between the theories are going to be metaphysical differences. And so when you look at uh, Einstein's special theory of relativity and the, the, there was an alternative put forward by Lorentz at, at around the same time, the two theories do look to be empirically equivalent. Different story once we get to general relativity. Game changes when we get there. But at least with those two theories, they look to be empirically equivalent. And the difference seems to be in one theory you have something like an ether and the other theory you don't. And so that starts to look like a metaphysical difference at that point because there's no empirical test you can carry out to like work out whether the ether exists or not it, it, by the lights of both theories. So it is more the way we conceptualize the world than what we can observe of the world that is the changed question. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm not, I'm, I mean, that, that's the sort of, you could certainly look at metaphysical questions in conceptual terms. And there are, there's a healthy tradition of philosophers doing that, particularly in Australia. Uh, I'm still reluctant to sort of put my hand up for an account of what the difference is. Uh, but you can, you can sort of at least think that some of the conceptual questions are metaphysical questions and those are important questions for science to, to answer as well as the sort of empirical questions about, you know, uh, what predicts what and what explains what. So let's come to the big problems that physics is now facing, which metaphysics could help solve. Tell me about them. Yeah, so at the moment we've got two very successful theories. I mean, in some sense, physics is at a point now where it's the most successful it's ever been. We've got a theory um, of small-scale interactions, quantum mechanics, We've got a theory of very big, large-scale interactions, general relativity, and they're both extremely well empirically confirmed within their domains. So there's nothing that we've discovered so far that would tell us that general, no empirical fact that would tell us that general relativity is false. In fact, all of the empirical tests we've done have confirmed general relativity. We've recently just confirmed one of the last predictions of general relativity, the existence of gravity waves. And similar story for quantum mechanics, all of the empirical tests we've done have confirmed our, our best theory of quantum mechanics, and then a, the sort of, there's a sort of uh, descendant of standard quantum mechanics, quantum field theory. And the difficulty is that although these two theories are extremely successful, they also are incompatible in some way. Um, it's not as straightforward as the two theories contradict each other. 
It's more that uh, the two theories in some sense fail to be fully general. So they don't give us fully general pictures of, of the world. And um, what we want is something that unifies these two theories together. Uh, so here's a sort of very rough and ready way of getting at the idea. If you try and take quantum mechanics and use it to give you an account of gravity, it doesn't seem to quite work. If you try and take general relativity and give you an account of gravity at very small scales, like sort of quantum account of gravity, it doesn't seem to work. So you kind of can't take quantum mechanics and scale it up. You can't take general relativity and scale it down. And it might be that we want something that sort of works regardless of the scale that we're thinking of. And this is the great search for this great unified theory that That's we hear right. about. Yeah. So, and, and this great unified theory is what some folks call theory of quantum gravity. Um, so examples of, of approaches to quantum gravity include string theory. Um, but recently there have been other approaches that have come out, theories like uh, loop quantum gravity or um, causal set theory, all of these different ways of trying to solve this question. And what we find is that these theories start to get very strange very quickly. So just to take one example, if you think about uh, loop quantum gravity, the loop quantum gravity people make the claim, at least, that the universe no longer has spatial or temporal structure at the fundamental level. So as we try and unify these two theories, it seems like we lose space and time in some sense. And that's, that's a very weird result. And I think it's sort of trying to make sense of whether, what that means for the world, whether it's really true, whether physicists are right about their own theories, um, and what implications it might have for sort of you know, the rest of the metaphysical assumptions we make. Those are all tasks that metaphysics can get involved with and philosophers can get involved with, but of course, in tight collaboration with physicists, right? I think this really is a conversation that, that has to happen between physics and philosophy. And one of the reasons for this is that um, we don't have any empirical evidence that could settle the matter at the moment. And, and it may be that we never will have empirical evidence to settle the matter, though that's controversial. Uh, so the sorts of scales at which these theories make predictions, if they make predictions at all, are so small that we can't, we just lack the technological capacity to probe those sorts of scales. You know, the Large Hadron Collider is still several orders of magnitude to, like the, the scales at which it probes are still several orders of magnitude too large to what we actually need to, to probe to confirm one of these theories. So the conversation is really happening without any empirical evidence pushing the theories around. And so it's a sort of mathematical come physical, come philosophical mess, I think, that everyone needs to get in and sort out. Your current work looks at the nature of time, which is part of the, the underlying problem that, that you've referred to. How could the changing the way we think about time break this physics impasse? So I, I think one of the issues here is that uh, we see time as being necessary for a range of different uh, physical notions that seem to be important, and not just physical notions, but a range of other sort of everyday notions that we seem to be important. Uh, and what we might find is that if we can sort of break the link between time and some of these other notions, we might be able to make a bit of progress. So here's, here's an example. Uh, there's a common view, and I think it's a fairly intuitive view, that time is sort of necessary for causation, right? So if something causes something else, that all happens inside a temporal framework. If you lose time, there's a thought that you lose causation. But if you lose causation, then you may well um, lose anything like observation. 
So when we perform an observation and that manages to confirm a theory, uh, we typically do that in virtue of causally interacting with the world in some way, shape or form. Um, and if we lose time, we may not be able to actually carry out observations in a meaningful sense. And so these theories which say, look, there's no such thing as time, if they also get rid of causation, then by their own lights, they may not be able to be empirically confirmed in any meaningful sense. They may undermine the very capacity we have to observe and uh, gather data to provide support for a theory. And so if we can find some way in philosophy, potentially, to break the link between time and causation by, for instance, giving an account of causation that doesn't presuppose time, then that's a tool that a physicist can take hold of and say, well, here's how we can give an account of how observation works for these theories. It uses this notion of causation that's been built without uh, temporal language or temporal concepts being embedded inside it. So there's a sort of a direct project that I think philosophers can get involved with, thinking about the relationship between time and causation with an eye to thinking about how that's going to um, fall out for things like observation with respect to these theories. But how can time not exist? We made an appointment to meet at a certain time today. Yeah, so it's a, I mean, this is a sort of difficult question. Um, and I think one of the, one of the things that it's useful to think about potentially is uh, that there are sort of two ways that we could think about time not existing. One of them is to think um, time doesn't exist fundamentally, right? So if we look down in the very basic building blocks of reality, we don't see time in there. But nonetheless, at non-fundamental levels, at higher levels, we find time emerging in some sense. And we're used to pictures of emergence of this kind from elsewhere in science. So, for instance, just think about um, water. Water has a range of properties like being wet, uh, being potable, you can drink it. But we also know that water is made of H2O molecules. And there's a sense in which it doesn't seem right to say that H2O molecules are wet, right? It's water that's wet, not the H2O molecules that constitute them, right? So some of these properties that are appearing at the higher level with respect to water are not appearing in the more fundamental building blocks that sort of constitute or make water up. So the thought would be that time is like that. Time arises at, at non-fundamental levels, and we live at one of these sort of non-fundamental levels, this sort of like realm of relatively macroscopic objects. Uh, but in the fundamental reality, time doesn't exist. And what these physical theories are telling us is about the fundamental reality. And like, keep in mind, there are lots of things that we believe in in an everyday sense that don't appear in physics, right? So in some sense, again, this is nothing new. There are no chairs in physics. There are no tables in physics. You and I are not going to appear in any fundamental physical theory. Nonetheless, that doesn't lead us to believe that we don't exist. And so time might be like that. It might be no part of the fundamental physical theories, but nonetheless appearing at some non-fundamental layer. And then the, the, the question is, and again, I think this is another metaphysical or philosophical question, is how do we make sense of this idea, this idea that time itself is, is built or made up of something that's not temporal in the way that water is made of H2O molecules, which are not wet? So there may be some more fundamental concept that we have to excavate within the concept of time. Something, yeah, maybe something more fundamental that um, underpins or explains the nature of time or how it is that time exists. For my own part, I'm inclined to think that what we're seeing here in part is a limitation to some of our conceptual apparatus. I think that we've, um, 
evolved in an environment where it makes sense to have concepts like time and space and cause and all of those sorts of things. And then we're using, we're sort of probing the deep fundamental level of reality where some of these concepts may just not be applicable anymore. And what we have to do is change the concept, the concepts that we have. We have to maybe replace time with some other kind of concept, some other picture of the the way that reality works. And so, I, again, I think that there's a there's a work here for philosophers to do in sort of conceptually re-engineering our, our concepts to come up with something that helps us to make sense of what's going on in physics. I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to want me to ask this one. What does that do to the possibility of time travel? I mean, it, it depends a little bit on um, whether or not time exists, right? So if if we're happy to say that Time is not part of the fundamental layer of reality that physics is describing a, a world without time at some level, uh, but nonetheless time emerges at some higher level, Then and, and space as well, right? So both time and space are emerging at some higher level. Then uh, you can have time travel in the normal, the normal way. I mean, not, not sure there is a normal way to have time travel, but um, in the way that, for instance, is permitted by general relativity, which does permit uh, time travel of a kind, um, you'll be able to have that so long as it's happening between sort of macroscopic objects like like things like us, you know, or even, you know, some microscopic objects actually as well. But as long as it's not at the like deep fundamental layer of reality where there's no time. So if time emerges, then time travel can emerge just as if space emerges, then, well, we'd better hope that space travel emerges. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere fast. So does that mean you actually believe that one day we will be able to time travel? Um, I think I, I, I do believe that time travel is physically possible, at least insofar as um, general relativity is concerned. And so given that I think that time travel is physically possible and I don't think that there are any sort of deep, nasty uh, logical problems with time. So sometimes people worry that, you know, if you travel back in time and you, uh, you know, kill your grandfather before your mother was conceived, then you won't be born to travel back in time and you end up in this paradox. I think that there are good and well-behaved ways to sort out paradoxes like that. So I think that we can have uh, time travel in a paradox-free way and it's physically possible. So yeah, I'm happy to sign up for time travel. Unless, of course, it turns out that time doesn't exist in any sense, right? If time is not part of the fundamental level of reality and it doesn't emerge either, then I think uh, we've got real problems with the concept of time travel. But I also think we've just got real problems in general. We're going to have to try and sort of rethink the way that we look at the world in a pretty serious way. It sounds like we also won't be able to make appointments. It does seem like, and you might think that's a good thing. I can see it being rather difficult to function. When we talk about whether time exists, we're talking about whether there's an objective reality outside of the concept of time that exists in our heads. The same question arises when we contemplate the existence of mathematics. Some philosophers believe mathematical facts are discovered. Others believe that they're created. What's the significance of this distinction? I, so I think this distinction uh, is a pretty old distinction. It goes back for in philosophy at least, at, um, as far back at least as, as Plato and the ancient philosophers who uh, raised a distinction along these lines between whether or not mathematical objects are created or discovered. Uh, for me, the, the significance is, is a metaphysical one. You know, if, if mathematical objects are 
created things, sort of figments of our imagination in the way that we create fictional characters or the way that we um, create computer computer game characters inside a computer game, uh, then we don't really have to worry too much about the metaphysics of these things, right? They're just going to be whatever the metaphysics of fictional objects in general might be. And there are interesting questions over there as well, but at least we have no new questions to answer. If, on the other hand, mathematical facts are discovered, then it seems like there's something there to discover and that that something is in some sense independent of us. It's something that uh, we can use our minds to uh, uncover. And then I think you really do have some pretty interesting metaphysical questions to answer. If they're things that we can discover, but they're independent of us, where are they? What are they? Uh, How do we interact with them in in a loose sense of interact in order to be able to to understand and gain knowledge of them? I think that if um, we discover mathematics, then it raises a sort of very different metaphysical picture of the world. And that metaphysical picture is sometimes called Platonism, the view that mathematical objects exist. They exist independently of our minds. They have uh, no spatial or temporal locations. They um, sort of nonetheless sort of you know exist in this glowy other realm somewhere that we glom onto with our minds. Glom, that's a great word. It is a good word. It's a, a very very much a philosophy um, philosophy standard. I think the, what the does glomming. Ah, oh, to sort of lock onto, I guess, with your with your mind. Um, so we can sort of glom onto these things with our minds, but then the, the question is, well, how, do we, how do we manage to pull off that? How do we reach outside of space and time with our minds in order to understand mathematical objects that um, are sort of sitting around in this other realm? And is there evidence in our environment for objective mathematical reality? So I think it depends, it depends on who you ask. I uh, and some other philosophers... Uh, think that there is evidence from science, in fact, that mathematical objects exist. I should say, though, that um, before I sort of tell you a little bit about the science, the scientific case, if you ask a mathematician whether mathematical objects exist, in my experience, they almost always say yes. And uh, they almost always think that the evidence for their existence has very little to do with science. It's because of something about mathematics that gives them um, what they take to be the the, the reasonable belief in the existence of these objects. Um, it's, un, it's unclear to me exactly how, how that works, right? How mathematicians come to, to hold those beliefs and on what grounds they do. Um, but there is another way which, which goes, goes through science and treats mathematical objects like other sorts of things in science, science that might seem a little bit odd. So uh, one of the things about mathematical objects that makes it difficult to... Uh, believe in their existence, I suppose, is that you can't really directly observe a mathematical object. It's not like you can walk down the street and trip over the number two, right? We're not, we're not living on Sesame Street, right? But the, 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 if, if we can't observe mathematical objects in that, in that way, then you might think that they're actually quite similar to a bunch of other things that we believe in nonetheless, right? So uh, there are lots of cases in science where we haven't been able to directly observe uh, or even observe um, in in much of a sense at all the objects that scientific a scientific theory might be positing 
But nonetheless, we come to believe in the existence of those things because we believe the theory. So um, it depends on what you think about the about about this case in in light of recent facts. But uh, black holes are a sort of standard example here. So black holes are things that you can't observe, and you've you know you've got a good ex explanation for why you can't observe a black hole. Right, light goes into a black hole and never comes out. So you can't really, you know, bounce any kind of signal off a black hole that you might be able to use to gather data about it. So you can't observe it in that sense. And that's true of mathematical objects as well. But we nonetheless believe in the existence of black holes. Why do we believe in the existence of black holes? Because there's a bunch of stuff we can observe that black holes explain. And there is a, a view that we should believe in the existence of mathematical objects for basically the same reason. There are physical facts that are explained by mathematical objects. The way that mathematics is explains the way that physical reality is in certain ways. And it's those explanatory connections that should lead us to believe in the existence of mathematical objects, even if we can't observe them. Right, so the basic idea is that the number two is just like a black hole in, in certain sense. You can confirm them both via a scientific theory. And can you give me examples in, in nature? Yeah, so there are a couple of uh, examples that are sort of easy to, easy to get, a, get a grip on, I think, and quite compelling. Uh, so, for instance, here's an example that Darwin gave. Uh, I'm not going to put my hand up for this being the correct explanation, but it's certainly compelling at first glance. So uh, consider honeybees. Honeybees produce hexagonal honeycomb, and... There's a question about why it is that honeybees, or hive bees in particular, produce hexagonal honeycomb. Why do they produce honeycomb made of hexagons and not squares or circles or triangles or some other regular or irregular polygon? And Darwin's explanation was that there's a sort of efficiency constraint that drives the bees to use this shape. And there'd been a conjecture in mathematics that had been known about for a long time that the most efficient way to divide up a two-dimensional surface into regions of largest area with least total perimeter is to use hexagons. So if imagine you're, you're sort of tiling a courtyard and you don't have a lot of money and you want to buy the smallest number of bricks that you can, but you want to nonetheless completely cover the courtyard. If you go out and you buy um, rectangular bricks, you're going to end up buying a lot more of those bricks than if you go out and buy um, hexagonal bricks. And the reason is that the, uh, assuming that, that they're all sort of roughly the same size, the, the reason is that the hexagonal bricks are going to interlock in a way that enables you to cover the surface in the most efficient way possible. And so people had sort of conjectured, in, and you can see there's a sort of pure mathematical idea here, right? You imagine a Cartesian plane, you're dividing it up, what shape are you going to use to divide it up? You don't have to think about courtyards, you don't have to think about bricks, you can just think about mathematics. And Darwin's thought was, well, the honeybees are under certain constraints, just like you're under certain constraints when you're trying to tile your courtyard. The honeybees need to produce uh, the largest nectar storing cells, right? So they need to be able to store as much nectar as possible, but they need to, they want to use the least amount of wax possible, right? So they want to be uh, using the least amount of energy because, you know, energy is a cost and evolution is going to, you know, punish the excessive cost of any kind, um, in particular pr production of things using energy. And so what Darwin thought is that honeybees are going to converge on the use of hexagons because they are the most efficient way to divide up this, the, to divide up their comb. So they're going to use the least wax to produce the greatest areas if they use hexagons. 
Now, this was a conjecture in mathematics for, for a long time, but in 2001, it was proved that, in fact, hexagons are the most efficient way to, to divide up a surface area. And so there's a thought that part of the explanation for why it is that hive bees have evolved to produce hexagonal honeycomb has something to do with the mathematical facts in the neighborhood, namely that hexagons are the most efficient way to divide up a two-dimensional surface. Now, I said that that's not entirely correct because um, it's not the, the, the sort of hive bee honeycomb is three-dimensional, and this is a two-dimensional result in mathematics, and then there's an interesting discussion and debate in biology about how you extend it to the three-dimensional case. But it's a sort of compelling story, I think, that gets you into the mood of thinking about how mathematical facts could explain physical facts. Um, and once you sort of get into that mood, you can start to see how it is that you might come to believe in mathematical facts in a similar way you believe in, say, things like black holes. And when you talk about these examples, mathematics seems beautiful and, and very much part of the real world. But that's not what, what most people think about when they think of learning maths at school. Do you think bringing some of these philosophical ideas into our conversation around maths could engage people more in the knowledge of maths? I think so. I mean, I, I think that these philosophical questions about the nature of mathematics can help people to approach mathematics from a completely different angle and get an interest in mathematics that is not necessarily based on just sort of chewing through calculations, which I, at least for me, that was a lot of what my mathematics education was like. It was like, you know, here are some, here are some um, transformations, now do them, particularly in algebra. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm all for doing mathematics and, and doing that sort of, that sort of, uh, and learning all of that as well. But sometimes you might want to know why it is that you're learning these things. What, what is the sort of deeper picture that this might be painting? Or what, what, how does it relate to your everyday life? You know, when you're solving for X, like what, what the hell is that going to do for you? And seeing some of these cases where mathematics is playing this sort of substantial role in science and explaining the way that physical reality works helps you because you not only see that you're being given some sort of mathematical homework to do, but you're also sort of getting a little piece of the story of, of nature and the way that the world works. And I think that that can make it more exciting, more interesting, contextualize it in a way that would, I think, encourage engagement in mathematics. Well, Peke Stephen Hawking, but I'll go for some metaphysics along with my physics, thank you. Dr. Sam Barron, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of Australian Catholic University. Thanks, too, to Trey Karuna-Rathner, one of our talented media production students here at ACU, for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it, too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy.